0: Issues in Ethical Perspective. The Town Hall Forum originates from Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Gordon Stewart, senior minister here at Westminster. Today's forum is co-sponsored by the McKnight Foundation. Today's speaker is international journalist and author Georgie Ann Geyer, a regular panelist on PBS's Washington Week in Review Ms. Geyer is a syndicated columnist who writes on foreign policy and international affairs for 120 American and Latin American newspapers, including the Chicago Tribune and the Washington Times. She was the first to interview Saddam Hussein nearly 20 years ago. She has talked into the middle middle of the night with Yasser Arafat and interviewed the Ayatollah Khomeini She was the first American journalist to interview Fidel Castro, resulting in one of her seven books, Guerrilla Prince, the Untold Story of Fidel Castro. She made headlines early in the 1960s when she went with guerrilla fighters into the jungles of Guatemala on her first foreign assignment. She was 27 years old then, and there were no other women correspondents in the United States. She once said in an interview that being the first woman foreign correspondent was something like being a possum at an elk convention. A person of conscience, Georgianne Geyer, is not afraid to take an unpopular position when she believes it important to do so. Ms. Geyer's latest book, Americans No More, The Death of Citizenship, has made her both friends and enemies. Not a day goes by without a headline of a, or a simple discussion of immigration, the collapse of previously peaceful societies around the globe, bilingualism and multiculturalism, corporate globalization, mistrust of government, and the rights and the influence of special interest groups. Ms. Geyer argues that with each day that goes by, we are losing our sense of citizenship and we need to regain it. Known for foreseeing the internal collapse of Yugoslavia in 1989 and predicting the same for the Soviet Union when no one expected it, Ms. Geyer's concerns about the United States future are alarms to be heeded. Charles Peters, the editor of Washington Monthly, once said that she was the least knee-jerk writer I have ever known. According to Mr. Peters, today's speaker shows courage in putting aside an ideological perspective in order to state the truth. Here today to speak truth as she sees it, please welcome Georgie Ann Geyer to the Westminster Town Hall Forum on the topic Citizenship in a Fragmented America.
1: Thank thank you so much. You know, I remember in the early days when I would go back to my beloved mother who was then alive in Chicago And I'd come back from one of my trips overseas, and she would say, well, dear, whom did you interview this time? And I'd say, well, Mom, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini, Gaddafi, Arafat, uh, Fidel Castro, and Juan Perón. And she would say, well, dear, I don't want to interfere in your life, but you know, I really don't approve of the company you're keeping. (laughs) 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 You know, I got into the... um, dictator business rather early. (laughs) I don't know how that happened to a nice girl from the south side of Chicago like me, but I was covering the world and for the Chicago Daily News and I remember one of the very first big experiences was the one that uh, the pastor referred to when I went to Cuba in 1966. And I had gotten there on a fluke, a young correspondent, I was very excited and the second night I was having dinner about midnight with some Cuban officials and they said well Georgiane we're going to have to leave you're going to see Fidel tonight so we raced back to the hotel Havana Libre and there was Fidel Castro this apparition for a young journalist walking up and down two jeep loads filled with troops lots of guns and we went into the lobby of the hotel to do the interview well I have to tell you it's not very hard interviewing fidel castro because you don't have to ask any questions <laughs> he starts talking and about nine hours later he stops talking <laughs> and believe me you notice it well about 30, however he stopped talking and he looked at me very seriously and he said it's time to get the ice cream so i had no idea what he was talking about except possibly this big ice cream parlor across from the hotel So I said, oh, that's very nice, which is what I say when I have no idea what's going on. It's a very fine response. Uh, Then he looked at me very seriously and said, we now have 28 flavors, to which, again, right on the mark, I said, oh, that's very nice. (laughs) And then he rather explained it, and he said, before the Cuban Revolution, The Cuban people loved Howard Johnson's ice cream, and we now have more flavors than they have. That's our way of showing we can do everything better than you Americans. Well, I thought that was an interesting little insight into his particular personality, so I put it at the end of a very long interview, which was important because he had disappeared for six months before that. So the next week, I got a cable from the Chicago Daily News, and yes, we communicated in cables. There are those of us alive who remember that. And the cable said, Howard Johnson's has responded. They now have 32 flavors. (laughs) So when you think, ladies and gentlemen, of those of us out there doing this extremely dangerous and important work, Uh, I can assure you that uh, it's not all that important, though it often is very amusing. As I went on with my own work uh, leading to our subject today, I began to cover different kinds of community breakdown. They weren't really revolutions like Castro's, they were more devolutions, perhaps, or regressions, like the Ayatollah Khomeini's carrying uh, his country, Iran, back 1,100 years. And that reminds me of the time I interviewed the Ayatollah. It was in 1978, December, just before he went back to overthrow the Shah. And I had gone overnight to Paris. It was very, very snowy, very icy, (coughs) excuse me, very, very wintry. And he was ensconced in a small town outside of Paris just before he went back. Well, I had set up the appointment and I went out there. I was very conservatively dressed. I had a long, long coat on, long skirt, long sleeves. I always tried to dress appropriately for my interviews, although it was also very cold. Well, I got out there, and these young, westernized Persians around the Ayatollah immediately saw me, the western woman, and they immediately put this little scarf around my head with just my eyes showing. Well, I didn't really mind it, although it's hard to work uh, with just your eyes showing. But in a way, I could understand it because being as enticing as I am, (laughs) a man of his years, he had to be protected from himself. (laughs) Well, when I went in for the uh, interview with the Ayatollah, there were three of us, the interpreter, he and I. And when he came in, it was really like this apparition floating to the floor in front of me. And I was very used to the Middle East. I love the Middle East. I love Israel, I love the Arab countries. I was not strange to me at all, but he was very strange. And during what was even stranger, and it's odd for me to say this in this beautiful, uh, sacred, holy place, I had this very unreal, unearthly feeling of waves of evil coming from him. And it was very intense. And it was very real and very palpable to me. Now, I don't usually go around, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> thinking of people with waves of evil. But I have thought, I found myself often in the presence of goodness, I would say, Anwar Sadat, the great Archbishop Romero in, in Salvador, many, many people I've interviewed. There's much more goodness in the world than we choose to think, I think, because the, uh, the uh, Khomeini's get a lot of the attention. But that was one of the most intense things that I have ever felt, and it was very, very uh, real. I found later that he was conducting the revolution in Iran through putting his voices on 12 recordings on the telephones back to Iran, they would be re-recorded, boys on Hondas would carry them everywhere, and we would find they were broadcast from the rooftops, so the Iranian Persian people would feel that he was indeed everywhere. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as we come down to our subject today, all of these experiences went into what I am going to say today. They are the experiences of a journalist, not unfortunately of a philosopher, much less a theologian, like our pastor here today. I don't have that expertise, but I can tell you what I have seen in the world. And I've proven to be a good uh, predictor of the way things are going to go when I trust my journalistic judgment but before I go into that one other brief example of where we are as a nation today this took place in 1987 and it was the week that President Reagan then in power of course was meeting with Mikhail Gorbachev for a whole week in Washington and I didn't even even call the White House because there were (coughs) something like 5,000 journalists from all over the country. Well, that Monday they called me from the White House and they said, "Miss Geyer, this is the White House. And I said, hello, White House, which is what you do when you're raised like I was. And they said, we'd like you to come on Wednesday for an interview with the president. He's going to meet with four columnists. Well, of course, we were ecstatic. I went over there at 1.30. I'm very excited because this is a really an historic week. And the other three, of course, as the pastor said, as usual, we're all men, with dear friends of mine, you know. And the first thing they said to me was, Gigi, my nickname, why do you think we were chosen for this? And, you know, I, ladies and gentlemen, I never have to wonder that. I don't wake up in the middle of the night. I don't have all those stresses and strains wondering why I was chosen. I'm the only woman, it's very, very clear. So I'd meet those guys on the street today. They're darling, I love them. And they would ask me, why do you think we were chosen? (laughs) Anyway, we got in there with the president. He looked on the top of the world. Beautiful silk suit. He was very slim. Uh, He looked so happy. I immediately looked at his hair. His hair was not dyed. Mine was dyed. Um, And we began to talk. And one of the men asked him, well, Mr. President, um, what about the evil empire, what about the so- Soviet Union, how much you hate them? And, and he said, oh, no, Reagan said, no, no, the president said, no, I don't hate them. No, the evil empire, that's a thing of the past. We're all friends now. He said, that's all over. They no longer believe in one-world Marxian domination, through the, his exact words. Well, we for, first we didn't believe it. We kind of looked at one another. And God bless the president, but he did say occasionally kind of goofy things. We thought that was one of his charming, you know, off-the-top-of-his-head things. Well, we asked him three times, and he said the same thing. No, the Cold War is over, he said. When we walked out, ladies and gentlemen, I started to tremble with my love of history and my love of this country and my love of real peace after this tremendous conflict of 70 years. I was breathless, and I said to one of the other men, one of the men, I said, "We just heard the announcement at the end of the Cold War, and we did. It was really that week. It was that meeting between Gorbachev and President Reagan that can most likely be traced, although the whole thing took some years to, to develop. Now, ladies and gentlemen, how do I come from those ideas to what we're going to talk about today, which is American citizenship? and, indeed, citizenship all over the world, which I am absolutely convinced is the topic of today. And by the turn of the century, citizenship topics, who belongs, who belongs, why, and where, are going to be the topics that really engross the world. Well, for one thing, that interview with President Reagan, that was the end of the Cold War. It was the end of this incredible conflict which did not end in war, thank God, because of rather good planning on our side. I've always thought that our presidents should have told the American people that the Cold War was over and why and what we had accomplished. It was a gigantic feat, but instead we are left with a kind of uncertainty. Uh, We don't know what really happened. We see a new world which is very complicated in which many people are alienated. We're less sure now in many ways than we were at that time. So let me speak in the time we have about what has oddly enough come to be almost the unspeakable about citizenship, about what it means to be the citizen of a nation in these modern times. And then I beg you to think again, why should this most traditional, even boring subject which we all took for granted for so many years, be almost unspeakable today. Even God help us, and this is the place, heretical. Here is a quote from President Lincoln on citizenship in 1858. He remarked to the assemblage that perhaps half of the American people alive in his day had no ancestor present at the nation's actual founding. But, he said, if they looked back through their ethnic history to try to trace connection with those days by blood, they find they have none, that they cannot carry themselves back into that glorious epoch and make themselves feel that they are a part of us. Ah, but ladies and gentlemen, how sad our citizenship would be if and indeed it ended there, and it does not. Lincoln went on. He said, of course, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. But then he said, even people who were not, did not have ancestors there at the birth of the nation, they would find that that moral sentiment taught in that day evinces their relation to those men. For those principles were meant by their founders for all mankind. They belonged to all men because the founders had embodied the father of all moral principle and that meant that immigrants equally as well as the native-born had a relation to the authors of the declaration exactly the same and here's the key as though they were blood of the blood and flesh of the flesh of the men who wrote it. I can't think of a more beautiful quote and today let me take you to question 83 on the citizenship test. Question 83 asks name three reasons to become an American citizen. Please don't talk to me about Jefferson or Washington or Lincoln or Woodrow Wilson or John F. Kennedy. The three reasons are to get a federal job, to bring my relatives from abroad, and to get a passport to travel overseas. Think of then another great American president Woodrow Wilson in 1915 in a speech to new citizens. He said they had vowed loyalty to no one, only to a great ideal, to a great body of principles, to a great hope of the human race. Then Wilson warned, think first of humanity so as not to divide people into nationalistic camps. And today, I want to sustain, as I do in my book, Americans No More, that we are dividing ourselves into squabbling, bartering groups. much many of them the same, the principles the same, as we see in multi, once multi-ethnic Bosnia, or the Caucasus, or in once beautiful Lebanon. In place of the radical merit individualism on which this country was founded, and which has laid the basis for every single step forward we have made, such as in civil rights, we are now dividing down into desegregated groups that demand recognition and privilege based upon race, religion, color, creed, exactly those elements that traditional America so eschewed and tried to escape in the old world. Demands are being made in the name of ethnic groups or special interest lobbies that essentially represent no one. I trace in the book, because politics, political structures are one of my specialties, how various special interest groups, in particular many Hispanic American groups, are laterally funded by big foundations like Ford Foundation in particular, also others, that allow ballot battles to be fought not in a democratic way by the vote, but through court cases which impose the new structure of America. Do these represent the Hispanic American community? Not at all. Ninety percent of Hispanic Americans are impassioned about citizenship issues. Every poll, every survey, every book. I tr- Traveled along the Mexican Texas border a year ago. I have never met such patriotic people as the Hispanic Americans. These are self-interested groups of activists who essentially represent no one except their own ideology. Before, Woodrow Wilson, Lincoln. Before also, there were real strictures to becoming a citizen. No dual citizenship. History and language tests were rigorous. You had provide witnesses to character and intent. There were FBI checks for criminals. There were mediating institutions all over the country who helped people become citizens. You couldn't serve in a foreign army much less as a head of state. It was simply assumed that English was the language of the land. It was simply assumed that immigrants came to America to be Americans and leave their past behind. In Chicago when I was growing up we called it the old country we simply assumed that only citizens were vote would vote could vote today dual citizenship is common language language tests and civic tests have become ridiculously evil uh, easy they give you the answers when you go into the ethnic lobbies or even the ins the immigration and naturalization service when they give you the questions ladies and gentlemen it's a fraud i've said this in my articles i say it in the book and i said it to the commissioner of of the INS recently, and she agreed with me. It's a very strange moment. There are no mediating institutions now, but in 1988, the testing, the preparation for citizenship, and the approval of the tests were given over to different ethnic lobbies and private companies. We have so many Americans as leaders of foreign states that no one even thinks about it anymore. Now, here's the one that really hits everyone non-citizens are voting all over the country. If there was one particular privilege and right to being a citizen, it was the vote. Of course, it's still illegal, you will say, and you're right. But all you have to do is get a library card. All you have to do is have a fraudulent document, which are absolutely all over the place, and buy them in San Diego in the main square, and you can vote. And everything we're doing is to make it is making it easier to vote. Uh, the citizenship tests are now standardized tests. They are so simple, and there is so much scandal involved in them. You had one. Your Channel Five in St. Paul here did a wonderful, wonderful expose on the NAS group, which is a private group, and showed that they were just passing people through with absolutely no awareness of what country they were coming to, at all. There are mantras. Benefits, benefits, benefits. We have become a country of benefits for others, not a country of dedication. Easy, easy, easy. That's what the tests say. You can take the English test by phone soon. Ceremonies, oath of allegiance given in other languages. Let me say something important here. This is not the immigrant's fault. It is our fault for not prizing and protecting our citizenship out of, for a lot of reason and to accept challenges that are not correct at all. Multiculturalism comes into this. But what is multiculturalism? Ladies and gentlemen, I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. I know multiculturalism, and I know multiracialism, and I know multi-ethnic. Everybody was different. We had different churches. We had synagogues. We had black people. We had white people. A lot of the time, we got along pretty well, sometimes not so well but we all were Americans. This is not an onerous duty, ladies and gentlemen. These are the universal principles that every country in the world is now striving toward, including our former enemy, Russia. The irony, the terrible irony is I am invited to civic education conferences in Prague or in Moscow or in Asia where Americans talk, try to teach other peoples about citizenship and civic education, and we have complete, we are completely losing it here. So you don't misunderstand me. I am a fervent American, but I am also miss internationalism. I speak five languages, and I always know that we come from a nation, after all, whose principles are for all mankind. We're not tribes, we're not clans, we are the country that embodies that Wondrous passage when people became citizens who were former subjects, when they became autonomous human beings, self motivating, responsible for themselves and for their families and their neighbors in their communities. Ladies and gentlemen, this didn't happen overnight, and it didn't happen simply. And as one writer on this, Marianne Glendon, says today, we are in danger now of being of roaming in a land of strangers. Here at home we have the citizen as taxpayer, the citizen as consumer, the citizen as tourist, the citizen as stranger, the citizen of a cause, the citizen citizen of a gang, as complainer, as claimant, and even citizen as cog in the great globalized economic machine. Ladies and gentlemen, as we come to a close here, I want you to Think of what Americans, what we, we've always been so blessed in so many ways. We had the story and we had the system, and we still have it. But we were more isolated before. We had those great arms of oceans. Today, with the information revolution, we are not isolated. Things can happen here today that could not have happened before. We are no longer exempt from the rules of mankind. Not only information flies like sound, so do missiles you didn't notice last year the Chinese made threats against Los Angeles with their missiles but is this to be thought of as hopeless no ladies and gentlemen what I see is that we are beginning this dangerous voyage toward disintegration and breakdown of course we're nowhere near Lebanon of course we're nowhere near Bosnia I don't think it would even come to be any revolution or civil war in this country. But I think we'll wait too late. We're nice people, we've got a lot of fat on the land, so we don't see things very quickly when they have to be done. We don't show an urgency today. So I'm, I'm not pessimistic, because since all of this was done del- deliberately, it can be undone deliberately. And every place in the world, countries, Germany, France, Holland, are pulling back from these disintegrative factors. Now, one last thought before we go to questions. My last chapter in Americans No More is called Another Voice. And in it, I say, essentially, I am a person of the radical middle. I'm a radical moderate. I hate the extremes. I hate the far left and I hate the far right. And for 30 years I've been watching them tear the world apart that I've been covering and watching them destroy every good and decent human quality in so, so many countries. And I see this radical moderation, this radical center all over the the country. In the last chapter, I go into all the citizens groups, which are springing up all over the country, some of them in the universities, many of them in the communities. Americans know something has to be done. You have one of the best people here, Harry Boyd, at the University of Minnesota, and the Hubert Humphrey Institute, who has been leading the way on this. So I am not at all hopeless, but I am very, very urgent that we must begin on many levels to regain the coherence of this country and to be absolutely unapologetic about it. This is not to be racist, this is not to be xenophobe, it's not to be nativist. In fact it is to be all the other things, the good things about America because without our system, without the story, without our justice system, without these principles to come back to, there will be no development, there will be no progress at all. Now, ladies and gentlemen, in in closing, uh, I would like to quote from Richard Lamb, another very original thinker, former governor of uh, Denver. And he said recently at a conference I attended, he said, my contention is that each generation must, must confront its own heresy. That reminded me of Lincoln, who also said, We must think anew, disenthrall ourselves, and thus save the nation. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe, I'm convinced, it is time to confront a number of heresies that are all around us and to disenthrall ourselves and thus become truly Americans once again. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Ms. Geyer. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. Today's speaker is critically acclaimed author and international journalist Georgie Ann Geyer. Today's forum is co-sponsored by the McKnight Foundation. While the ushers collect the questions from the audience here in the sanctuary at Westminster, those of you listening on the radio may also call in a question. By dialing 332 3421, 332 3421. We are ready to begin the question and answer period, Ms. Geyer. Is citizenship a matter of nuts and bolts, of, um, of voting and who may vote and so forth, and paying taxes and staying informed and so forth, uh, or is there more to it?
1: That's a very good question, Pastor. Uh, Yes, the nuts and bolts are very important. The federal government would particularly tell you the paying taxes part (laughs) is is important. But there are the nuts and bolts, rights and privileges of being a citizen. Voting, uh, being on a jury, paying taxes, uh, serving in the army in times of war, uh, those sorts of of duties which are sometimes onerous and sometimes joyful. But there's more than that, Pastor. there's the, the young lady who is the historian of the immigration service said to me recently, she said, it used to be an attachment of the heart. And I think if it's not attachment an attachment of the heart anymore, and that's why I'm so critical of the message that we're giving that citizenship is benefits, 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 what can you get from it, like question 83, then it's really nothing. In my research for the book, I, I found citizenship to be a profoundly spiritual bond, as the, not only as the Founding Fathers thought of it, but until very recently as the INS, as, as individual human beings thought of it. Because when you think about it, it's the only oath that we all make to one another. It's the only commitment we make to one another and to our nation. We make lots of other commitments, but this is the only one that bonds us together. And without not only its nuts and bolts part, but without its spiritual unity, uh, we will just be an agglomeration of people living together on a piece of land. And what we need, we need flags. I'm I'm not a crazy patriot with a flag sewn on my head or anything. But we do need the accoutrements, first of all, of what it means to be an American.
0: Can I take you back? To your your comment about multiculturalism and benefits, uh, becoming a nation of benefits rather than identity, um, and just ask you to elaborate elaborate a little bit more on that because some people would say that we are becoming a, a dangerously uh, a nation of individual identities, uh, the freeman in Montana and so forth. Can you t- speak a little bit more about your criticism of multiculturalism?
1: Absolutely, Pastor. I think, in fact, I I really didn't finish up that that thought in the way I should have. When I was talking about multicultural neighborhoods in our big cities as Chicago, where I came from, multiculturalism in quotes today means something quite different. Essentially, as it's espoused in the universities by the academic left, uh, in this case, uh, it means the imposition of group rights, where you will have group rights groups bartering for position in society as opposed to the radical individualism of American society. Now I know what you're saying is we also are, I think, we're also becoming too, too me individualist and that's another part of it. Uh, There are a lot of Americans sort of floating free, the the upper elites who lived in a globalized society and who don't, uh, who say over and over they don't have, they don't need a country Well, my answer to that would be uh, good luck. Uh, Just on a nuts and bolts thing, what's going to bring us together? Where's your police going to be? Where are your firemen going to be? Uh, Where are your schools going to be? All of these things are the accoutrements of of nationhood. So it's happening on many levels. And I know this is complex and confusing, but I've tried to, to bring all these different elements together.
0: Would you comment, please, on legislation being considered in Congress? reforming U.S. immigration enforcement, especially proposals to deny American education to immigrant children.
1: Yes, this, was, this proposal was actually uh, uh, put down in the last two days, and it was very controversial, the denying of education to illegal aliens' children. In fact, I wrote a column on it yesterday. Uh, what I said was, yes, it's a very, it's a very nasty thing, actually. So was Proposition 187, a very nasty thing, again denying benefits. But we have to understand that things have gone so far, the American people don't know what other way to go. In California, with 187, they had no other way to make their feelings known, because so many of these decisions are being made laterally through the courts, through these activist ethnic lobbies, bypassing the Democratic vote. It looks as though the good news, and this shows, again, how the great majority of people in America are impassioned on citizenship issues, and it looks like this immigration bill will go through. It's not the best. No bill is ever the best, but it's a big step forward, and I think it shows that Americans are aware that things have to be brought back to a reasonable uh, level. We're not talking about keeping immigrants off. We're talking about people coming here legally. And that should be so clear and so very simple that we shouldn't even have to delineate it.
0: Would you favor dropping the term English as a second language?
1: That is very, someone must be reading my mind. (laughs) Because I saw that yesterday, last night coming here. And I thought, why are we teaching English as a second language? Uh, It enrages me, and again, ladies and gentlemen, I speak five languages. When I go to other countries, I have worked doggedly out of respect for other peoples and cultures to learn their languages. When I'm in Latin America, I speak only Spanish. I've done all my interviews in Spanish. I speak Portuguese, Russian, and German. Uh, What are we doing with our language? And I barely touched upon that, because our time is short. The idea of, of introducing linguistic confusion into a country which we are doing is the most single divisive thing that anyone could possibly do what are we thinking and americans are ashamed to get up and say oh but english is important ladies and gentlemen we've got to drop those apologetic guilty feelings let's be guilty about the things that we should be guilty about but not asking people who come here voluntarily to make money and to live a better life to learn English. It's also, if anyone didn't notice, it's the language of the world. So what you're doing is cutting off children from the entire world. And that is exactly what some of the activist groups want. They want to keep Spanish enclaves within this country, the most incredibly dangerous thing you could ever do.
0: One person asks, how are we fragmented as a country and why?
1: Wow, I knew someone was going to make me pull the whole thing together. I hate that. (laughs) What I've tried to do here, ladies and gentlemen, is to bring together all these fragments that I see. How are we fragmenting as a country? Let me bring them together together in one or two major things. Uh, We are not protecting our unity. And under that, I would put everything from civic education in the schools, attachment to the Constitution, which they used to ask in the INS tests, Our children don't even know what, the, ha, what it means to have an attachment to the Constitution. Uh, civic education, American history, for American children, for new immigrants. Uh, I, I feel very strongly about somehow we've got to bring back end this bypassing of the democratic system through the courts. I don't know how to do that. All I can do as a journalist is lay these things out. Uh, We've got to put our entire immigration citizenship system in order so that our new citizens are Americans first and not encouraged, and it's our fault, not theirs, not encouraged to keep their loyalty to other countries. Uh, Non-citizen voting, we should be extraordinarily tough-minded about the vote and, and love it and protect it this is, means a lot of things it means reestablishing the fact some kind of as the late wonderful that great woman barbara jordan who again was like charlie peters she had was no knee jerk and i love people like that uh... she called for in her commission on, on immigration reform one an americanization program like we had in the thirties for new immigrants and second a national id card there's nothing we can do without a national ID card, because you have to have a system that will be, be faultless, that, that you can really check, the employers can check, people can check who is legal, who isn't. Uh, that's another unspeakable, yet every European country has ID cards. All my European friends have ID cards, and I haven't noticed that they've been taken over by the Gestapo recently. In fact, in many ways, they're more peaceful and more coherent uh, than we are.
0: You said this change in citizenship philosophy has been done deliberately. What do you mean by this? Who did this? Or how did the new direction come about?
1: Another, another question I hate because it makes me pull everything together. It really started, you know, everybody says the 60s, the 60s. Yeah, and it was a rotten decade. I was in Vietnam that time and it was, it was just awful. But you know, this started a lot before the 60s. It started really in the 30s and 40s when the civic education in the schools began to be downgraded and totally politicized. The late Morris Janowitz at the U of C has done the classical works on these. Uh, then when the 60s came, that whole generation, who was already alienated from America with no, very little civic education, a lot of Marxist influence in the universities, in the activist groups, we have to say that too, just as we've influenced the Soviet Union, they influenced us. It's just a historical fact, but we don't want to deal with these historical facts. Then the, the war in Vietnam gave the 60s generation, which was already alienated, it gave them a, a, a raison d'etre. It gave them their cause. I hated Vietnam too. You don't have to be a 60s radical to have hated Vietnam. Then you had the break. so much of the breakdown, the illegal immigration, people being unwilling to really confront these things. We lost our confidence as a nation. And I, as I see it, ladies and gentlemen, threat is from both the far left who gave the ideological formation and from the far right who want cheap labor. The Wall Street Journal, it's a great paper, but their editorial commentary is open borders. And there are also you know, utopians on the right as there are utopians on the left, and there are also very cynical, greedy people on the right, as there are on the left. Again, I, I, I search for this radical American middle, and I find it in these new groups.
0: This is a question that came in by phone from someone listening on the radio. It, it's a protest, and it's a question, I think. Uh, why should immigration levels be tightened now when the majority of the immigrants are African Instead of European?
1: Um, well, there's a, there's, that's a mistake. The majority are not African. They're, they're actually very, they're very almost none from Africa. There are some uh, um, Caribbean peoples, there are some West Indies, but well over half of the immigrants today are of Mexican heritage. And, and a lot of, there also should be noted that a lot of illegal immigrants come in from Canada and come in at the borders and they just blend into the country and no one notices them because they, they're not really obviously taking any jobs. But they are, and they're also here illegally. There are a lot of different things going on. Now, the, actually what's happening, and I've talked to several of my African-American friends recently about this, uh, African-Americans are beginning to realize that illegal aliens are taking not only entry-level jobs, not only poor jobs but construction jobs office jobs which should be going to our african-american fellow citizens i mean we've got to this is going to take if it can be done if it will be done a tremendous a tremendous change but if we don't do it we will have masses of poor black american citizens in the big cities and illegal aliens pouring across the borders taking those jobs It. it it's so obvious, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and there's so there's a lot to be done.
0: Another question from uh, a radio listener, Would you consider world citizenship destructive to national identity?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I go in the, bo- in the book, I go into all these kinds of new utopian citizenships, diaspora citizenship, uh, binational citizenship, of course, it's international, universal. I, I don't have any problem with that. I don't think there's anyone more international than I am, and I don't think there's anyone more patriotically American than I am. I don't see any problem with having those kinds of non-conflicting dual loyalties, if you will. For one thing, as I said, the American story, the American system is for everybody. It's not excluding anybody. I mean, we are not clans and tribes and ethnic groups. This is the first universalist system that made subjects into citizens that has ever existed in history.
0: I was brought up in an Hispanic culture. What is American culture?
1: You know, this is very interesting because more and more people uh, are asking, what is American culture? What is American citizenship? What does it mean? and I know what it is in my heart, and I know the different areas I've gone into in the book. The American system is the first time in history where subjects of princes and potentates became self-governing, self-motivating, autonomous individuals who committed themselves to one another for a better body politic and to their nation. They thus promise they will protect the security of the nation that they will vote, that they will serve in juries, that they will do all of the, those citizenly uh, duties that I've mentioned before. But American civilization is a lot of other things. It's a work ethic. It's a, a lot of cultures that came together and blended without conflict. It's uh, traces uh, radical merit individualism in place of group rights. So every individual, regardless of race, creed, color, belief, can rise. Ideally, we've never been perfect, but these are the principles that we live by. Uh, There are many traits of America, and these are our own feelings about citizenship. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if more parents would sit down with their children and drop their own lists? And we'd all have different lists, but they'd all tell us a lot about America, and we should have different lists once we accept the citizen obligations.
0: Is either presidential campaign encouraging the citizenship revival that you would like to see?
1: I would have to say that the Dole campaign is much more attuned to this. Uh, they, have, they have called me. They have taken the book. Uh, they've talked about Bob Dole giving a speech on this. And you, you tend to find that the Republicans are are more attuned. I think that is the only word I can, I can use. But on the other hand, we have uh, the president probably will sign this immigration bill, because it's very, very popular. So at least we have an administration that will, even with things it doesn't essentially believe in, will bend to the popular will, if I can put it in that manner, when the popular will does become that, that obvious. So I see things moving, and that's the important thing. And the more Americans get up and don't accept uh, these old chestnuts, is the word my mother would have used, that uh, you mustn't speak about these things. Mustn't speak about citizenship? Boy, I'm not going to accept that.
0: How can existent public institutions, I think what you called the mediating institutions, schools, religious congregations, and so forth, help to build the concept of citizenship in a global context? What institutions or arenas have the most promise for this task?
1: Why that is interesting because the meeting, mediating organizations, which in the 20s, 30s, 40s were the schools, were the churches, were the synagogues, the new immigrants would be sent to different groups within the area where they had, where they had settled. And they would be helped, and they would be loved. I mean, it, this, these were wonderful days. Everybody says this, and they would be Americanized. It's a word you're not supposed to use anymore. You Use it around the INS, and they get real nervous. But Barbara Jordan didn't get nervous, which is one of the reasons I loved her. Um, what can we do now? This is a long thing, a long struggle, ladies and gentlemen. Because in 1988, they gave the, the new mediating organizations became the ethnic lobbies. Most of them Hispanic, also private ones. They decide what the test is. They decide who passes. They decide if you can speak English. In Chicago, there have been lots of stories on this in the Chicago Tribune. The one uh, group complained to the INS about the phrase becoming an American citizen because they said, well, Latin Americans are Americans too. Well, forgive me, ladies and gentlemen, I am a Latin Americanist, and I know Latin America as well as my own country. They do not consider themselves Americans, and they don't want to be. I mean, it's not that we're holding something back for them. They are quite proud and should be of their own cultures. So, but the telling thing was the INS actually changed the phrase in the Chicago test from American citizen to US citizen. Now, I am just giving you the top of the iceberg. The things that are going on, as your Channel 5 and St. Paul showed here, they were really the pioneers on this, are just simply staggering. Uh, There are stories in Washington every day. There are subcommittee hearings in Congress. In fact, they've asked me to testify. Uh, That'll be interesting. (laughs) And so there is a lot moving on these subjects.
0: Two more questions. Does the world economy unite capital while driving people apart? Where is the patriotism of GE General Motors and so forth?
1: Well, this is another very, very important part, and I have a lot in the book on the whole globalization phenomenon with regard to citizens, because as Robert Reich, one of the um, Clinton administration of course, shows in his book, which is brilliant on this, uh, the globalized folks, the, our world elites, they think you know that they, they, they're having cocktails in Singapore and dinner the next night in Bellagio, and they don't really care about what happens to the working class in America. Reich's book is brilliant on this. Uh, they live in gated communities in this country. Uh, they, he, Reich himself, who is one of the Clinton people, talks about how uh, they believe citizenship is no longer important. Uh, what do we do about these folks? Uh, the globalization is here. Of course, it's taking jobs away. But lots of things are taking jobs away. Uh, our, our immigration policy is taking jobs away. As this wonderful new Philadelphia Inquirer Uh, series shows, Beyond the Shadow of a Doubt. But I don't think, yeah, the big companies are are very much uh, guilty about saying that well, citizenship is no longer important. And of course, they don't give the kind of funds they do for community groups anymore. There's so many things going on that it becomes very, very important. but Very complicated. But I believe firmly, and I believe impassionately, that if Americans began to really care about this, if they clarified American citizenship in this age, that people would respond, the corporations would respond, the government would surely respond, the INS would respond. Uh, People like Harry Boyd at the university uh, can help in many, many ways to show how to do it. That's what these groups are trying to figure out.
0: You grew up in Chicago. Can you share with us something of uh, the influences that led you to be the person that you are? And uh, to beat the odds, Mike Royko uh, once said in his introduction to your book, Buying the Night Flight, that a Chicago bookie might give you 1,000 to 1 odds of becoming <laughs> a foreign correspondent.
1: <laughs> oh, Royko's so great. He's one of my best pals. Uh, yeah, I was born in the South Side. And you know, when people say, well, how did. How did that must have been hard going from the South Side to foreign policy. I said, No, not at all. Um, you know, our mothers were very ladylike, uh, but, you know, they were, they were realists. We came from, actually, I came from a nice neighborhood, but I don't want you to spread that around, because that would really hurt me. Uh, but our mothers were, were realists. I mean, we had, we had a street sense in the South Side of Chicago. And I said, You know, our mothers would say, now girls, when we were growing up, most of the men out there are wonderful men. They're like your fathers and your brothers. But there are bad men out there too. And then I say, you know, our mothers taught us where to kick long before we know why. <laughs> and that to me is not only street sense, but it's foreign policy sense. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've had an administration that doesn't know how to kick and doesn't know why. <laughs> but also, my great influences were my parents, my father, who had a small dairy business, a very honorable man. Extremely honorable businessman, my little Baptist church, which was a storefront church, and taught me that um, you 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 have to go directly to God. they said, you know we, are, we we've got no intermediaries here and that was both very thrilling and very, very terrifying <laughs> and uh, of course northwestern um, there were so many influences, there were so many people who were good to me, and there were so many this country was so good to me and um uh, Well, I feel very close to everything good and spiritual that I have seen in my own life, being here in this absolutely beautiful and sacred uh, place. It's a a great, great honor to be back, and I I thank you. And if I've confused you, forgive me, because um, it's confusing. But if I've clarified some things on what it means to be an American, or even started all of us thinking, because I'm still thinking, um, I'd be very, very happy. Thank you.
0: Again, thank you for... Uh Being with us again here at the Town Hall Forum, welcome back to the Twin Cities. Thanks to all of you for being with us today.